0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So now I'd like to look at another of the Eightfold Paths. I think
1: your mic is not.
0: Ah. So. I am not good with this type of mic. <laughs> okay. It's working, thank you. (laughs) And first I'd like to say about this, um, what I'm trying to do today, what I try to do with the book, is actually to look at the spirit of the Buddha, to look at the Eightfold Path, in terms of what does it mean to me in my life today? How can I apply this today? So that's very much from uh, the point of view I come from. And so what i like to look at now is the appropriate mindfulness, since there was a few questions about mindfulness. But, but possibly maybe I uh, might have some uh, revealing to make, is that to say that uh, for 10 years, I was a nun in Korea. And in Korea, they do not talk, or they did not talk then, about mindfulness. This is not a term you use in Korea. In Korea, you talk about questioning, you talk about doubt, you talk about perplexity. They talk a bit about concentration. And so what was interesting is that when I was uh, doing what we do in Korea, which is just to ask a question. What is this? What is it? That's all you do there. And what was interesting is that within six months of doing that as a practice, I became aware. And not only did I become aware, but I started to see that I was becoming aware in a compassionate way. And then after doing these 10 years of uh, what is this, what is this, I uh, returned to the West and lived in England in a Buddhist community when most people did Vipassana meditation. And then I started to hear about this famous mindfulness. And then I did a few retreats, of uh, vipassana retreat, of uh, being aware of the breath, listening to sound, being aware of the body. And I thought, "Mm, this is a good method. (laughs) And then I uh, started to realize that to me it was talking about the same mindfulness the same awareness. And that's why when I teach, I generally start always with concentration and inquiry. Because to me, this is what is common to all Buddhist meditation. To be really a bona fide Buddhist meditation, you need to have these two. But then you're going to cultivate these two in many different ways. There are so many different methods. But it seems to me that they all go to the same place, which is to help us develop what I would, what is in the Noble Eightfold Path called appropriate mindfulness, and what I would actually call nowadays creative awareness. So that's what I like to look at now. And so first I will look at appropriate mindfulness, more in a, I would say maybe more conventional Buddhist manner, and then I will after that look in, into a, maybe a more modern manner. And uh, recently, some of you might have come to listen to Biku Analayo, who is uh, at the moment among the teachers a top, top, top in terms of mindfulness. Is it? So I'm very happy you had the opportunity to be with the great man. And so some of the idea, of course, comes from him. And so in terms of the definition, (coughs) the appropriate mindfulness, I know that generally we're told to start with mindfulness of the breath, which is true. That's the way it starts in the Satipatthana Sutta. But if we look at the Sutta, we need to be aware of the breath, of the body, then to be aware of the feelings. To me, that's one of the major ones, being aware of the feeling tone, the Buddha... In a lot of the sutta, again and again and again, you have lots of very interesting things with the feeling tones. Then, of course, you have being aware of the mind, states of mind, if it's a greedy mind, hateful, deluded, confused, clear. And so I think we have to be careful of the idea that when we sit in meditation, we are trying not to have thought. To me, that's not what it's about. The concentration is to anchor us, but to anchor us in such a way that we can see then, what is it that distracts me? And for me, the the third, the mindfulness of the mind, is very much about actually like as a sideline looking. What is it that takes me away? So then we can see more clearly, what is it I am thinking? How am I thinking? Which I think is very important. Then, of course, the last one of the four foundations of mindfulness is being aware of mind objects. But then you have everything under the sun. You have the five industries, (coughs) the five sangha, the three fires, the seven factors, the four noble truths. Basically, you have everything. So in a way, you could say that there is nothing we cannot be mindful of which cannot become practice. And to me, that's why, in a way, this idea of appropriate mindfulness is really so important, because actually it's something we can do very easily, anywhere, anytime. And so it's not something which really needs such a specialized place or specialized activity. But then this mindfulness, I think, is very complex because it has so many different aspects. If you look through the text as a... Bhikkhu Analayo demonstrated, you have, you see, we are conscious, we are human, so consciousness comes with being human. But then, this consciousness can be cultivated, can be, in a way, um, honed, so to speak. And so I think that's what this is about that actually what we're trying to do is not to be just conscious, because you know we can be conscious, but how is it going to be a, make a difference? Is that the type of consciousness we are manifesting, we are experiencing, in a way makes a difference. And so that's why I think one of the aspects, which is very important, of appropriate mindfulness, is ethical discernment. So in the mindfulness we are trying to develop, there is this idea that it's based on ethics. And that's why the Eightfold uh, Paths really feed each other. There is a lot about ethics in the Eightfold Path, which means that the mindfulness also has some ethical part. And to me, that's what I saw very quickly as I did meditation. In Korea, I was doing meditation 10 hours a day, six months of the year. And I could quickly see that I was starting to be more aware, but more aware in an ethical way. So that there is ethical discernment, but I think also with the mindfulness, and that's why each of the elements of the Eightfold Path help each other, there is this wholesome stability. And personally I think that's given a little with the anchoring. it's also a kind of quality of the mindfulness we try to develop, that there is this wholesome stability. So what does it mean by wholesome? Is that it, It's not fixity. Often we solidify, we are fixed. Here we're talking more about a mindfulness which is stable, which is balanced. So that I feel the mindfulness, the, the meditation help us over time to have like a ground within ourselves, like a refuge, that even if things are problematic, we can, in a way, even if we are little, it's intense, and we're little, something within us is stable. There is a core which is stable, which is grounded. But also, I think, and that's what is important, is that in that mindfulness, there is this exploratory, this probing quality, so that It's not just, in a way, staring at the world, looking more closely, but it's kind of looking more closely, but also looking more deeply, looking inside what is going on, not just staring at it, but looking, how is it? It's a kind of this probing, exploratory guarantee. And that's why there is this um, example that Bhikkhu Analayo found in the sutta, about the plowman, that there is this example of the plowman which plows the field, like the, the old days. And then he gives three aspects, which I think is interesting to give some definition to the mindfulness. One is the plowman needs to have clarity of this direction so that it's kind of, you're not going all over the place, so it's not wobbly. The mindfulness we're developing help us to be more clear We're kind of more clear. We kind of, in a way, know where we're going. We're not kind of wobbling, not sure what's going on. Because it's clarity of direction. But also there is this idea of balance in terms of the pressure the ploughman apply. If the ploughman push too much on the plough, he's not going to advance. If it's too light, it's not going to work either. So you just need to have this right balance. And to me, the mindfulness is kind of, again, this balanced quality. We're trying to be stable and balanced at the same time. But the last one, which I think is very interesting with the plowman example, is that as you plow, you can reveal by digging. So as you dig, then you might reveal things. And I think that's also what we're doing with the meditation and with the mindfulness is that we start to see more clearly what's going on. And so we start to kind of reveal things to ourselves. And that's what I experienced the first time I, um, I became really aware of awareness, in a way. I was sitting in meditation. I was in Korea. In my very, I had been there maybe for about seven months. And I was in my second three-month retreat maybe within a month of it, and as I was sitting there, and I was not cultivating awareness, but just asking the question, what is this? But just doing that, suddenly I became aware of my mind. And I became aware, actually, of the constituent of what I was saying to myself. And I became aware that actually my mind at that moment was extremely self-centered because all my thoughts were about me. And, and it was quite shocking to me because at that time I thought I was a, one of the most compassionate person in the world. <laughs> and then to see that all my thoughts were about my story, my hope, my wants, my need, my fear, Was like, wait a minute, you know, where is a place for others in there? You know, they had a very small place. And then this made me realize, in a way, what was a practice about. The practice about is diminishing that self centeredness. So, not to go to 0%, because somebody has to take care of myself, but to go to 50% instead of being so obsessed about ourselves. Actually, to yes, I have a place in the universe, but I am sharing that universe with others. And this was the second thing that happened to me which really made me see how the mindfulness that I was developing in a way, not knowing about it, also worked. Is that by dissolving the self-centeredness then it gives rise to compassion. And that's what I noticed within, again, a few months to see that... I became more interested in others, and I could also put myself more at the place of others, not thinking of them in my own term, but thinking of them in their own term, and would actually change my action. And so that's why I kind of started to see that what I was developing, and that's what I would like to call it nowadays, creative awareness, so it seems to me that what we develop with the concentration and the looking deeply, we develop quietness and clarity which actually become this creative awareness. And then this creative awareness, we can really take it into our daily life. And that's what is the beauty of it. So it's not that we can of this mindfulness we're developing here will make us see more in terms of just staring at things, but I see it as engaging us more with what is going on. Not just inside myself, I think it's very important, but to engage in what is inside myself and also outside myself, so that we can, in a way, become creatively engaged with what is going on. And so we can, in a way, see more clearly And so we can bring it, for example, an easy one, is in nature. You know, like you walk. We go walking in the field. We go walking by the sea. And within five minutes, what do you do? You think of the office. Or you think of anything but being present. It's very interesting that. And I think, to me, the cultivation of the creative awareness Helps us to come back, to come back to just being here, on the walk, with the sea, with the mountain, with whatever it is, the flowers. And then generally what we see is that when we come back, in that moment, things are brighter. And you might think mindfulness is magic. It makes things more sparkling. Not at all. It just removes the veil of being somewhere else, of thinking of something else. And so I think that's one of the things of creative awareness of this appropriate mindfulness, is to really be here, but to be in a more spacious, in a more wide way. Not just to bits of myself, but to the whole moment and what is in it, the people, the nature, animal, whatever, whatever is in it, and to really see them for themselves instead of seeing them for my own interest. So there is more this kind of, I would say, egalitarian connection. But I think also it can be interesting to bring this creative awareness in work and to think, how do we work? And generally when you work, I think there are often two or three ways to work. One of them is that you barely start the task, that you're already at the end of it. And then you get to the next one, you're already at the next one. So in a way, you're generally a bit ahead of yourself. Instead of being, you know, what what do I have to do now? How is my body, my mind, how I do that task? When you are at the computer, I mean, I often write, and I'm often at the computer, and you know, you're generally trying to start kind of like this. And then you shh, you kind of end up like that, and you don't know how you got there. <laughs> and then you have a bad back. Or sometimes you get so caught up, you spend two hours, and then ah, you try, kind of when you stand up, shh, you have pain everywhere. So in a way, as we work at the computer, being aware of the body, and then maybe taking little breaks, so there is a little more spaciousness, a little more movement, Or sometimes we work, and actually we just do the thing automatic, and we're actually not present. You're kind of like just... But then it's kind kind of a slightly unsatisfactory quality to that. Kind of doing the work quickly, so then I can do something so much more interesting. To me, what was interesting was when I stopped being a nun. When I was a nun for 10 years in Korea, I was kind of, you know, my status went up just a little bit. Not much, but a little bit. But then when I stopped being a nun, the status went (laughs) totally. And I came back to England, and I had to earn some some money. And I had no qualification whatsoever. And then somebody said to me, oh, there is an opening of a job. And I said, what is it? And they said, oh, it's house cleaning. And my heart sank. Oh, house cleaning. I used to be this great nun. And I did not like so much house cleaning then. And then I could not do anything else, so I decided to do house cleaning. And very quickly, my training as a nun (laughs) was really useful, because it really helped me to really be present. And I realized that when you are present to your work, as long as you're not harming anybody nor yourself, then it doesn't matters so much. You know, you just do it. And actually, I really brought all my training to be really present and to really do it. And actually, I had often lots of insight in my house cleaning job. <laughs> it was one of my main places to have insight. But also, I realized then how much we identify with the status of the job. And if you think you're job has a low status, then you feel bad about doing it. When if you don't think about that and just do the job, actually, you can, it can be quite... I was quite satisfied with my cleaning of the bathroom and the toilet and whatever, and the flower arrangement, whatever was required. That's why I think I was cleaner, should be paid more.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so in a way, to see that the creative awareness really can take it anywhere, We can also take it in the relationship. This is interesting. Creative awareness in relationship. Because often you relate to your friends, your family, your partner, people in the street, often to what you want from them, for you. I think this is one of our main problems. We think we are the center of the universe. We are the center of our of our universe, but not the center of the universe. Everybody is little center. But I mean, if you want to meet, we have to go a little out of our center of the universe. And so to me, that's one of the important aspects, is softening that self-centeredness and really more opening to the other. And in order to see the other in a way we need, the mindfulness. We really need to me that one of the effects the cultivation of the mindfulness is to discover oneself but also to discover the other where they are, not where we want them to be, but who they are for themselves and not who they are for us. I think this is important in terms of relationship. And that's what I wanted to say for now. And then one last thing about the appropriate mindfulness. I think it's very important to remember that sati in the Pali originally means to remember. And that actually one of the functions of mindfulness in terms of concentration is to remember to be concentrated and to see that mindfulness is very important to concentrate. And concentration is also very important for mindfulness. I think it's very important to see that all these terms actually go together. Again, they're not exclusive, but they help each other out. And in terms of the mindfulness, we also have to remember, but that's another subject and it's a little technical, that you have sati, which means to remember, and which is basically what's going to help us to come back. And also, with sati, we have another term, which is sampajanya, which means to be aware fully. And then we have another term, which is yoniso manasikara, which is appropriate attention. So personally, I think, yes, technically, we could talk about these different things. But I think in terms of using this in daily life, that's why the term I use is to kind of bring them all together. That's why I use creative awareness. So there is a bit of attention in there, there is a bit of awareness in there, there is a bit of mindfulness in there. And it's all together, it's kind of what we are going to bring to our life. How are we when we drive? This is to me one thing which, I mean, in America, a lot of you drive because of the distance. And notice when you drive. I mean... Appropriate mindfulness, this would seem very important. But often you're really driving on automatic with your, especially your automatic cars. Mm-hmm. You know, and it goes straight and you just kind of, sh- goes by itself. But it's very, in a way, it's very dangerous because anything could happen. So to me, this is one thing which is interesting. You drive and then to drive with awareness and then you're really present to sitting there, to what you see, Everything. And then you think of something else. You really, and then you could be very far. And then suddenly you come back. And to me, this is where we we can really, it's very interesting to bring mindfulness. Or when you are in the um, supermarket and you are, of course, in the wrong queue, you know, all the other one looks going faster than yours, (laughs) you know, and then you think, "Mm," you know. And then just standing meditation. Just being aware. And at that moment, the whole thing, you feel stable, you feel balanced, and it's fine to be queuing in the supermarket. Next second, I am in hurry. I have this to do, I have that to do. And then, shh, the whole thing kind of tense. And then you kind of get a little unfriendly. Eh? Why is she talking to him? And why da, 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 da. And then you come back to, I am here. Just standing. And again, very interesting. How when we generally are in this appropriate mindfulness, there is some kind of, I would say, lightness. And then when we go out of it, often we can feel tension. And to me, this is a signal to, to see when I'm tense or when there is instability, stability, when there is this balance. Are there any questions or comments about that? Yes. Uh,
2: I'm a, a little confused by um, the meaning of something you said. Um, hmm. So you, you you were speaking earlier about mindfulness and um, uh, you said Uh, I I can't recall exactly how you said it, but that it should support, no, not support, that it, um, about ethical conduct. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. Could you uh, elaborate on that a little bit? I, I mean, a lot of times I would be mindful, and what I'm mindful of is not ethical conduct, because that's not what's going through my mind at that moment. Uh, so I'm understanding you to mean that you would then direct it towards ethical conduct, but I'm not sure if that's your meaning.
0: You see, uh, this is this is uh, that's why I think I was just talking in terms of the definition, and so one of the definition of uh, or one in looking at the different characteristics of appropriate mindfulness what generally is pointed out is that the mindfulness to be appropriate needs to have ethical discernment within it. So yeah, I would totally agree with you that you can actually mindfully kill somebody. But is this appropriate mindfulness? I don't think so. So that's what I was trying to point out. Basically, you have consciousness. Then if you train it a bit, you become more mindful. But you could be a very mindful serial killer, you know, and uh, to me that would not be appropriate mindfulness. So I think it's important to look, you have mindfulness, but also with it in terms of the Eightfold Path, you have appropriate. What does it mean to be appropriate, or sometimes it's translated as right, appropriate, whole, integral, uh, wholesome, authentic? I mean, there is many different ways to translate sama, so I think this is what is interesting to look at. The mindfulness we're developing, what kind of mindfulness it is. And so what is interesting is in terms of, you you know, you, suddenly you become mindful, lesser. And then you become mindful that actually you're thinking very nasty, aggressive thought. Then if there is no appropriateness to the mindfulness, you continue with those because you think, yes, you know, he did this and I'm going to get him or whatever. But if it's appropriate mindfulness, is hey, wait a minute. Is it a good idea to continue thinking in that way because what kind of action is it going to lead? That's what I'm going to talk about later. The appropriate thought and then appropriate action. So I think this is a difference with just being aware, you could say, and being appropriately aware, appropriately mindful. So it's kind of like you see something, it's like, like, you know, when I was saying, I was sitting in meditation and I saw I was self-centered. But what was interesting is that I saw it and I realized this was a problem, but in a way I did not feel bad about it. And I think that's what is, is, is important to see, that mindfulness is not what I call negative judgment. The mindfulness is not so that you then have on top of your shoulder a policeman or policewoman tell you, that's bad, or you're a bad meditator, or you're a bad this, or you, you should not think that way. But more to, in a way, creatively engage with what negativity might arise or creatively engage with what positivity might arise. So I would say, yeah, it's a good question, and then appropriate would mean there would be some eth- ethical discernment coming upon the mindfulness that will be part of it.
1: Uh. Yeah. I myself uh, think of mind, the concentration on, and the mindfulness as a two sides of same coin. And uh, uh, we got to anchor, anchor mind, in other words, concentrate in order to be aware of what's going on. Okay. And uh, also, I think. If you become compassionately aware, then wouldn't that just take care of just the ethical conduct? In other words, it will naturally
0: lead to ethical conduct? Uh, In good circumstances, yes. In in difficult circumstances, maybe it goes out of the window. (laughs) You see... uh, I'll talk more about this later, but to me what is interesting is that we generally all have good intention. Uh-huh. You know, most of the time we want to be good people. Yeah. So, And we want to be wise and compassionate. Mm-hmm. And then what is it that go, makes me go toward wisdom and compassion? And what is it that makes me go to the other way? That I think is what is interesting to look at also. Conditions. Mm-hmm. Inner and outer. Which make us go more this way or make us go more that way. So I would say yes, the mindfulness might help toward that but at the same time we have to be careful of the condition which might push us another way.
1: Oh yes, okay, yeah. But uh, uh, through meditation I become more aware of my reactions particularly my negative reactions so when I become aware, then I say, uh, "This is my ego." <laughs> okay. But uh, uh, you you clarified uh, a lot of uh, the actual practicing practice of meditation, many aspects. Uh, and thank you for that. Thank you. I just wanted to go back to the, the in-relationship when you talk mm-hmm, about, mm-hmm. would you mind elaborating a little bit more, Very uh, maybe specific practice of, I think in relationships sometimes it's hard because there's so many other emotional qualities that are happening to really, obviously there's the discovering of the self, but in, with others and where your mind goes and judgment and emotions and how to continually
0: come back. You see, I think one of the most important elements in terms of relationship is stability. Is stability. Because I think if you are in relationship, at one level, it it also depends if you are in the beginning or if you are in the middle. And then hopefully you're not at the end. (laughs) Uh, But what is interesting, for example, at the beginning, let's say you fall in love with somebody. What is interesting is that at one moment, at one level, you're very elated. Because it's amazing, all this feeling and all that stuff. And at the same time, you get, go into a kind of a weird, um, unsettled place. Because you wonder, but why are they loving me? You know, What's the matter with them that they love me? You know? So then they have to prove to you they really love you. Even if you're terrible, they really, really love you. And it's kind of very strange. This kind of, kind of really happy. And very uncertain at the same time. That's why I think it's very kind of problematic at the beginning. You have to go through that. And so, one thing about that. You see, you have to go back a little to looking at love, in a way. Love, loving. You know, that it be with a child, a partner, a friend. What is there? there? Generally, there is this feeling of love. And the feeling of love, how does it feel? Generally, it feels warm. You know, like you like something, that it even be like a flower. You like a flower? Oh, nice. Or you like a sunset? Hmm. Or you like no? Oh. You know, generally, when you like something, you open to something. That generally, is you open and you feel light and you feel warmth. And the problem we seem to have is that generally, uh, some of the time, we don't like ourselves. So you're stuck with this person, you kind of, you know, this nasty person within you. And you think, God, you know, I'm stuck. I'm stuck. You know, why am I like this? Who is this nasty person? I don't want to be a nasty person. And so first you have that relationship. You have to sort out. And so my thing is, if you were to turn that around, and you were to love yourself, you will feel warm all the time because you don't have to go anywhere. <laughs> so personally, I think this is the first thing to do. This is really important. That if we can start to accept ourselves, to love ourselves, then it's like we start to feel warmer and lighter. Then, if you meet somebody else from that place, it becomes much easier. That's one thing. Then the second thing is to see that if we love somebody, where, w- w- from which place are we loving that person? Are we loving that person, which I would call conditionally, which is, I love you, but you must be like this, like this, and like that. And if you do that, generally they say to you, oh yes, fine, you want condition? Then here are mine, and then you have this whole list. You know? Generally, kind of, then it's kind of like uh, you get into the battle of the... Kind of uh, the totalizing. Instead, I think what we do when we love somebody, that it be a child, that it be a partner, is in a way we're saying yes to that person, yes to their existence, that we appreciate their existence, we care for their existence. So we start like this. We start with generally by, I care for you, I appreciate you. And then you have the child who says, I hate you, because you did not let them watch their favorite program. I hate you. And if you think that this is permanent, then you're going to really be worried. They hate you now, they're going to hate you forever after. When actually, they hate you in that moment because of condition. You let them watch the program, they love you again, or you distract them, they love you again. And I think it's the same thing with somebody. It's kind of like to see that sometimes things happen. But do they happen because of me or because of them? You know, sometimes, like, you know, if you, if you, you have a couple, sometimes you'll have one with a little more uh, introverted and the other one a little more extroverted. And then one will want more space, the other one will want less space. And then one wants to have his or her space, then you think, they do it because of me. He or she doesn't love me anymore. He wants his or her space. But not. Generally, they do it because they need it. Because of them. So I think this is a thing we need to be careful about. But at the same time, if it upsets you that they take more and more and more and more space, then you have to to say it at the beginning and not, down the line, you get so upset about it. So it's kind of like, back to me, it's what I call creative engagement. Being aware of what is going on. Is it light? And that it's just going to arise and pass away. Then it doesn't matter. Is it really on your mind? Then you have to do something about it. But the way to address it has to be very careful. If you accuse a person, they're going to accuse you back. And so in a way, it's kind of like, how can I speak so that they can hear me? To me, that's one of the big thing about, that it be with children, partner, or families, is to kind of, how can we hear each other? And also, how can we see the person as they, as they come to be in that moment? Once I was cooking in the kitchen, my mother lived downstairs from in my house. And my mother rushed up and she says to me, she sees me cooking, said, You're cooking, never mind, I had an accident, but doesn't matter. And she comes down. <laughs> so I continue to cook because my mother is obsessed about cooking. If you cook you must not be disturbed. So I continue to cook. And I think, wait a minute. She said she had an accident. So I switch off all the things and I go down. I said, oh, but you were cooking. Never mind. Then I said, what happened? How did it happen? And then my function there first is to kind of, you know, not listen to what she says, but what is really going on. And then my function is actually to be calm so that she becomes calm too. So I thing is, in a way, we have to see at different levels. It's not just speaking. It's also our presence. How we can, in a way, you could say, presence calm or presence openness. Or if we suffer, presence suffering, but present it in a way which the, the person can, in a way, encounter in a way which is not overwhelming. But, I mean, it's complicated. So that's what I say for that. <laughs>
2: Now I'm really confused.
0: (laughs) Ah, great! Uh,
2: So I appreciate your your emphasis on uh, impermanence, um, but I'm wondering um, if all of conditioned reality is devoid of inherent significance, and uh, and if um, uh, we should uh, focus on not-self. How does Anatta relate to what you've been saying?
0: You see, the way I look at uh, not-self is... uh, What we have to see, not-self, doesn't mean we don't exist. Uh, Not-self basically means that there is no inherent existence, that we do not exist outside of the condition that forms us. And so personally, I see the practice as actually an exploration of conditions. Because if we see the awakening of the Buddha, was about this causes that. When that, when that exists, this appears. When that doesn't exist, that doesn't appear. That's what I think is major, major, major insight. And to me, in the the meditation, the mindfulness is actually discovering the condition that forms us, the inner condition meeting the outer condition. Because, as I will, I mean, the next thing I want to talk about is appropriate thinking. And in appropriate thinking, to me, the Buddha is very pragmatic. The Buddha is saying, and, and to me, the, the f- his first big insight in terms of the spirit of the Buddha was before he was even awakened, he was trying to meditate. And as he was trying to meditate, he felt he was so fearful and so in a bad state. And then suddenly he had this idea of thinking, but do I really need to be afraid like this? Do I really need to be in this bad shape? Or can I do something about it? And so personally, I see the Buddha as the doing kind of guy. You know, let's do something about this. There is a problem, let's do something about this. But before we can do anything, what are the conditions? So personally, I would say there is conditionality. I would not say everything changes all the time. I would say there is some condition which are more continuous than others. Is there an ultimate condition somewhere? That I have no idea that I have no idea. But what I found interesting is just to explore the condition of this moment, in this moment, and then the condition of the next moment, in that next moment. But, as the Buddha suggests, what is it that we can cultivate that will help us to be more creatively engaged, and more creatively aware in a wise and compassionate way to whatever condition arise, that it be inside or outside. Okay, so now, if we can continue a little uh, with the meditation, let's just stand up first, just stretch a little. if we find a comfortable posture. We can, if we want, again, this is just a suggestion. I would suggest uh, to do a loving-kindness meditation because I feel it follow well from listening. For me, listening meditation is about receptivity. And I feel that the loving-kindness meditation also is about that. So is everybody familiar with loving-kindness meditation? Or Okay, so, so, to do, so we're going to do it for 20 minutes. So you don't have to, in 20 minutes, go through the whole thing. But in 20 minutes, you could just uh, have loving-kindness for yourself, loving-kindness for people in this room, and loving kindness for life, lives outside this room, that it be the trees, the animals, the people. And what I would suggest is that actually, to when we start to look beyond what we might think or feel about ourselves or others, and to reach out to the human being who is alive, with breathing, with suffering, and wishing well to that human being, reciting silently, may I or you be happy, may I or you be well, may I or you be at peace. And so if you want to recite the sentences silently inside yourself many times, To help the concentration, you can do that. Otherwise, you can be with just that feeling of loving kindness, of wishing well. May I be happy. May I be at peace. May I be well. Now there are 20 minutes of walking meditation. And during the walking meditation, if you wanted, you could continue with the loving kindness to yourself or to others or to whatever lives you encounter walking outside. So we do this for 20 minutes and then we come back at 12.30.